You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we're talking about the idea of a cyber mindset and awareness. I'm joined by Jules Okafor, who's the CEO and founder of cybersecurity firm Revolution Cyber, an advocate for greater diversity in the cybersecurity industry. Thank you so much, Anne. I'm happy to be here. It's, it's so great to have you on. Um, thank you for accepting our invitation. So you've done a lot, um, marketing, communications, law, cybersecurity. Can you give the listeners a little bit um, about your background and how the intersection of all of those fields influences your approach to cybersecurity and strategy? Sure. So I'll admit that I don't know that when I first began I felt like it would. Um, My introduction to cybersecurity was more by uh, happenstance. And um, in joining, I spent a lot of time working with security operations analysts and um, helping solutions architects to build out uh, the the integrations between AV, Alien Vault, and Splunk, and selling it um, across uh, across the, the globe, actually, um, in Africa and also in the Philippines and India. Um, and what I noticed quite a bit was that uh, there was always this interesting challenge in communicating the value of security uh, to prospects and to organizations. The, the organization would understand that they needed to do something. They'd know that there was technology to do it. They didn't always understand how to communicate that internally inside the organization so that they could justify the expense. And quite frequently, they were not very good about indicating to employees how they would be impacted. And so what I found is a lot of the very um, powerful technology solutions we sold were often impacted negatively by a lack of um, ability to communicate what everybody's responsibility was and what the end result should be. And so I've seen lots of security um, projects fail, not because of technology, but because people did not communicate. Um, they did not understand what people actually needed. And then they failed to implement a process that worked prior to implementing the technology. That, you know what, that's really interesting. I think that we in cybersecurity often think that technology is the answer and we don't think about the people and processes and how we actually both build the mindset, but also even just do some basic training, right? Exactly, exactly. That a lot of why I've built out this company is because I want to live at that intersection. I want to help translate technology to people who are non-technical, like the HR and, and legal functions. But I also want to ensure the security team has a good understanding of the users that they're serving. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about how you ended up in this career almost accidentally by finding a job on, on Craigslist. <laughs> now you're a founder. Yeah, you're a CEO of your own company. Yeah. So can you talk about um, a, a couple things? Because I think there's an intersection between that, that parallel you made between like consumer good companies and training. Mm-hmm. What drew you to that post on Craig, Craigslist? And then, you know, the industry that you're in, did it live up to your expectations when you came into cybersecurity? And what do you think about as you look back now and say, wow, you know, why did I pursue that opportunity? 
I, I laugh all the time about that Craigslist posting because it looked very seedy. Um, and at the time, I think I just wanted to break free of, you know, dead end industries. So I sold, <laughs> I sold um, uh, electronic records to libraries. I've sold into real estate at the height of the Great Recession. And I knew why those companies that hired me hired me. They were at times when they were not able to build revenue and they needed someone like a sharpshooter in sales to come in and just go directly after uh, accounts. Um, but I figured that it wasn't a long-term career trajectory for me because I'd had two kids and I really needed something that I could build a career on. Um, and when I found the, the posting on Craigslist, it, it looked quite seedy. And I'll tell you, I don't even know why I clicked on it except it said account executive um, it was in cybersecurity, which intrigued me because I never really knew much about cybersecurity. Um, but I thought to myself, like, I could sell anything. Um, and so I applied to the job. And upon getting into the interview, you know, one of the questions they asked me was back in 2014, you know, where do you see yourself in three to five years? And I, I at that time said I saw myself as a thought leader in cybersecurity. And they laughed at me, um, literally. They They laughed and was like, well, you have no idea what this industry is. Why would you think that? Um, but I'd done my research before the interview, and cybersecurity was interesting because um, I liked the fact that it seemed to be mission-driven. People on a whole, even though everyone's doing something different, what I'd read indicated that everybody sort of had their reason, and it was a strong reason for why they wanted to commit to the industry. And I was always very passion-driven, very purpose-driven. So it just seemed like someplace I could come in and make um, make a mark. When I entered, you know, as a salesperson, I was very, I was in the beginning just very surprised at how hard it wasn't to sell because a lot of the people I was competing against were so focused on the technology that if I just helped and became a resource, I would, could easily compete and win against really large companies. I think we competed against IBM. We competed against, especially in um, uh, in, in the African market, IBM was very, very deep there, Sophos, and we won against them quite a bit. Um, and so my disappointment was that it wasn't as confusing or even technical as people made it out to be. I felt like it was made complicated on purpose in order to confuse. So I think it was, I found that security was deliberately uh, communicated in very confusing technical ways so that we kept people out and we isolated ourselves and, and protected our jobs. So a lot of the analysts I talked to, they would not share anything with me. They would not communicate with me. They just assumed I didn't know. So I had to go out and do a lot of the research myself. I, I spent a lot of time sitting next to them, even though they didn't want me around because I was a salesperson, and just listening in to what the customers were saying. And where I found that I was able to make the greatest um, impact was in like really listening actively and hearing what the customer kept saying and that we kept missing. So why do you want to start a SOC? Well, we're looking to, you know, manage our systems. We want to ensure that we understand exactly what is happening on our networks. And it would always be like, here's the features that our product does. And it'd be like, yeah, but he wants to solve a business problem. Well, what's the business problem he's trying to solve? And so till today, and that was what, six years ago, I don't, I find that we're still challenged with explaining the value um, of what it is that security is actually 
uh, meant to do. And so it's it's been real interesting for me to um, develop my career here because there's a lot of use for what it is that I offer because we're still not listening. And that's a big problem. No, and I, I do think that's a big problem is that we're still not, you know, there, there's a lot of fundamental problems. But I think one of the problems is, and we've created as, as ourselves for as an industry, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, is this both a proliferation of tooling, um, because it is, as you said, relatively, you know, some days easy to sell because somebody has a crisis, they want to buy a tool, right? Yes. They just want a quick fix, so can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how we've created our own um, ecosystem and maybe not done the best thing for our clients or consumers, but rather created this industry that is um, dependent almost exclusively on tooling. And it's only been recently that we started to talk about, you know, things like ease of use and things like um, even reduction in tooling, but more importantly, the human aspect of it. Yes. Yes. So, um we've we've definitely and I agree with you and completely we, we've done ourselves a disservice in our industry in focusing on tooling um and, and tech uh mainly because those are the tangible aspects of cybersecurity that can be used to demonstrate that something's being done most of cybersecurity when done well is invisible to most people so if you're a CISO and you're um, you know you're working with you're working under a CIO and or reporting to CEO um, having purchased technology that you can point to tends to address you know what are you doing here in this company why are you here and so quickly uh, CISOs and security leaders run and buy technology and I hear over and over again you never get fired for purchasing you know name whatever company. Uh, and so that's that's one of the first tactics that I see that I think does us a disservice is because we're not taking the time to explain the things that people can't see. What we're doing is buying something we think is a silver bullet, buying something that we can point to, even if it doesn't work, just for the sole purpose of justifying ourselves. Secondly, I think the issue that we have is that um, this industry is very heavily driven by investors and venture capitalists and um, and, and their interests don't align with uh, clients and customers and, and their interests. So a lot of times what I find is companies that are, de are developing focus almost exclusively on technology because they can, you know, everyone's trying to become a unicorn. And then the venture capitalists and the investors are saying, we'll put money into you if you can demonstrate that you've put it into so many customers. So there is an interest in companies not solving problems, but in getting technology into companies in order to validate themselves and get more investment dollars. There's a weird kind of uh, silent agreement in the industry that the security leaders know they're not getting what they need, but they need the technology to justify themselves. And then the investors and the security companies, they know that they're going to work with the CISOs to get it in this, the, uh, their environments in order to justify, in order to, um, to prove their financial value. And so in the end, clients, users, and really the industry is shorting the businesses because no one is actually making sure that we're solving for problems. That's really never the goal. I too fell into that with Revolution Cyber. When I first started, I was like, okay, I need to build a technology. And I spoke with the, the founder of another company. He was, I think, on his third exit because um, he'd built two other technology companies. And he was like, you know, Jules, 
why don't you build out a really good um, services company? Why don't you build a best-in-class services company so that you can really solve problems? And I stepped back and I thought about it. I was like, that's true. Really, all I want to do is solve the problem. So why am I also focused the same way as other companies? And so I had to take a step back and really think about it. Um, but I don't want to fall into the same pattern as I'm seeing because we're relying on technology to, not to solve problems, but to prove our worth, our, prove our, 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 to justify our existence. And it's not really for the benefit of anybody who's actually using it. Your perspective is really interesting, and your point of view is something I, I we don't talk about a lot. Was that one of the drivers for you to start your own company? And, and what have you learned since you started your own company? Yeah, so that's a great question. It, it is the singular driver for why I started my own company. Um, I left my last company, Fortress. Uh, they were, you know, I was the first employee at that at that company, and they were building out a vulnerability management project um, product that. Um, was going to both build in services along with the solution um, so that the technology would take care of, you know, maybe 60% of the issues, but the process building and then the people part of it would be built into the actual solution. Um, And so that model, um, I was responsible as as uh, the, the SVP of solutions to model that across many companies. And I recognized we, if we were selected um, as a company, most people didn't know, they were mostly buying the the support. They were mostly buying the people and the process development uh, more than they were buying the technology. Because what we would hear all the time is, I don't want another tool, right? So if you're going to give me the tool and kind of run off, I don't want the tool. I want someone who is invested in 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 our results, who is about the outcomes that the tool is supposed to bring to the company. When when you're focused on the outcomes as an organization, the way you look at a project is different. On one direction, in one way, you're no longer in the position of, I hope they choose me. It really becomes an interview between you and them about whether or not they're the kind of customer you want to be servicing. Do they have a good culture? Do they want? Do they do as they say they're going to do? And that creates a much more binding relationship. And so, you know, I was very successful at Fortress in that position. And so, when I decided to start my own company, I really wanted to focus on awareness that that infused a lot of the things I saw missing in awareness. Really, the marketing pieces, the strategic communications pieces the graphic design and and really exciting and engaging users. But I think more importantly, I made a promise to all of my customers from the gate that we would be committed to the results. So if you committed to us for a year, we could show you trend-wise, week over week or month over month or quarter over quarter, that we were actually changing behavior. And so my company is very focused on, is are the things we're doing collaboratively actually yielding the metrics we want? Are we seeing um, more people reporting? Are we um, noting that there are less people clicking on phishing? Because if not, then we, we're doing awareness and people know, but they're not changing their behavior, which should be the point. I, I like that perspective. And I think that it's a change we need in the industry. And I think it's a change that's going to be slow in coming. Yes. But I like the fact that you're tackling it um, yes. because it's needed, right? Definitely. And it's hard when you're sitting at a vendor, as you know, it's hard, right? Because we we have a responsibility, and I always tell people we have a responsibility to keep our customers from harming themselves. <laughs> we also have a responsibility to build great solutions and to get them in the hands of customers, right? Yes. So th- there's this there's this dynamic that that um, keeps us this tension, 
you know, that keeps us pushing forward. Um, can you talk just a little bit about, you know, this, this year has been, I, I can't, um, I can't describe enough, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the racial injustice we've been dealing with in the U.S., fires in California, as we sit here, a category four, you know, hurricane made landfall in Louisiana. It, it's been a really challenging, I'm going to say emotional year for people. It's It's been a very, very difficult year. Can you talk a little bit about how the confluence of all of these events has impacted cybersecurity and what you think I've definitely had to overcome my share of challenges related to my gender and my race. Um, I would say that this pandemic and with the confluence of this, you know, the racial uh, tensions, um, the political season we're in and just all the things happening, I'm not operating in an optimal fashion, just personally. I, I feel drained all the time and I find myself in this position of avoidance and, and you know, trying to avoid watching the news at, at, as best as possible, um, trying to avoid people because I'm trying to stay alive and really avoiding how all of this is making me feel because I'm afraid of what happens if I go too deep with seeing all these images of people being shot that, that look like me on TV. So it's been a trying time for me, and I'm a single mother with two kids, um, and trying to keep myself strong enough to respond to it, but not let it impact my willingness to drive forward with the business has been one of the hardest things I've had to do in a long time. But, you know, I am saddened that all these things are happening, um, but at the same time, I've learned a lot about myself and I've learned a lot about the industry and the people around me. I think what this has done is given me a filter by which to see things in my mind as they really are. And, you know, more, more than ever, I'm having these diversity conversations and in cybersecurity, I think we've part of what you talked about with the installation, we've, it been able to insulate ourselves from having the real discussions about race because we're all mission driven. We're all focusing on protecting companies. So we're vigilant about attacks and cyber attacks. We've never had to confront the really, really, truly confront the diversity conversation until we're like now hit with it via video. And the same people, the people inside your organization who are black, who are, you know, brown, we're all trying to figure out how do you support the people in your organization while not being made to feel like you're the cause of it. It's just this really weird conversation around racial t tension, all the Me Too, Time's Up movement stuff. But I think it's, it's hit cybersecurity because we're also at the same time having many more discussions about identity and privacy and what, what bias does in those conversations. So in the real world, bias is costing people their lives. And then you get into the office and we want to talk diversity, but we need to have the conversation also about how bias is impacting the way we're building technology, how it's impacting the way facial recognition is being used by law enforcement, how identity and algorithms can impact the way someone is treated within government institutions if we don't have black and brown people actually at the table helping to build those solutions. 
And so as we're having the conversation more broadly as a country and as, um, you know, at, at the, the globe is really having this reckoning about racial disparity, it's becoming very, very close to home with cybersecurity because we're also saying we need to move forward with these technologies that demand us to really look at bias closely. And most people that I'm um, connected to are willing to have the conversation they're not willing to make the change. And when I say that, what I'm saying is, I, I'm in a lot of conversations where people are like, yeah, you're right, you know, this is wrong, you know, let me know what I can do. Okay, and I will then suggest, you know, wonderful uh, um, candidates for jobs. And it's met with this kind of like, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not sure that they're right. Not even really giving them an opportunity to be interviewed. It's like, huh, okay, so you want diversity, but you don't want to add anybody to your team. You don't want to have diversity inclusion conversations because you're afraid it'll make people uncomfortable inside the organization. Then you don't really want diversity. And if you're a security vendor and you're out and you're serving customers that have a diverse workforce, you're doing them a disservice by coming to the table with people who look like each other, who think like each other and live in the same settings. So uh, what I've seen is a lot of, cybersecurity professionals are having to deal with, you know, a lot of these race conversations. And I, I really just listen for the silence. There's a lot of silence when these issues happen. Everyone knows it, everyone's watching the TV, but the cybersecurity professionals are not talking about it publicly. We're having conversations, people text me privately, we'll have DM conversations, but I think it's, it's better, there's progress, it, much more since I started in the industry, but I don't think people are ready yet to really start to say, what what must we do and, and how do we act to make sure that we're not continuing this pattern of, of uh, bias and racism inside our industry? Yeah, I saw it. So um, a couple things. I want to pull the thread on this a little bit and just take this this direction and we can come back to things like compliance and privacy and how it intersects. But I want to talk a little bit about the, the racial injustice piece because I saw some polling. Yes. Um, recently that said that there was a, a large swath of support in June um, for movements like Black Lives Matter. And there was a large understanding among you know, among white Americans for racial injustice topics. But that has really decreased as we've come into August. And, and according to this polling, you know, I, I, whatever you think about the polling methodology, it's what it showed, right? Yep. Um, and the second thing is... Um, I, I think about I think about COVID, and I think about how a friend of mine said to me, and um, and he lives in a different part of the country, and uh, and said to me, people are just tired of it; they just want it to go away. And I wonder, um, as I put kind of those two things together, that we as a society, I think, don't have the patience. The, we want quick solutions, and I think that lends itself, by the way, to cybersecurity too. The point I made, people just buy tools because they have a problem. I think we're always looking for quick solutions and something that's hard work and long-term work. People just aren't signing up to do and they get tired of it. They don't want to hear about it anymore. They just want it to go away because it makes them uncomfortable. Yes. And I, yeah. And I, so I sent it, Jules, I sent a note to my team um, earlier this week or, or actually yesterday because um, I was trying to 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 be supportive of, of the, the, the events of just this week, right? And one of the, and someone responded to me on my note and said, thank you. You know, thanks for sending that. And my reply, my reply to him was, I'm running out of words. 
Yep. You know, I can keep sending notes, um, but I'm running out of words because I feel like we're at a place where people aren't putting concrete solutions and aren't willing to do the hard work to keep those. And to your point, you know, referring candidates who are um, high quality candidates and people aren't willing to even take the time to talk to them. Yes. You know, there's a whole lot of people that get up and talk about DNI and cybersecurity, diversity and inclusion all day long. And then I take a moment to look at the org charts in their organization. And I'm like, well, you have to walk the walk, right? Yes. And it's the one thing that I'm not seeing. I see a whole lot. And I think they're well-intentioned, by the way. I think I a lot of these people are well-intentioned. I think maybe some of them don't know what to do. But I think others are like, well, I'm just going to press the easy button and move on. Yes. Does that yes. make sense? It, perfect sense. And... Um, <laughs> yesterday I was in, um, a Slack channel, a private Slack channel, and I am, you know, our company actually for cyber has been doing some, using our cultural engagement processes actually to, um, to have some of those DNI conversations, um, with security vendors, um, mostly in Silicon Valley and uh, was in the Slack channel and <laughs> someone sent out this product that apparently you can do DNI via text message. And I laughed because I, I was like, you know, this is the problem. We keep trying to automate very, very complicated, multi-generational problems and, and meet compliance uh, with something that really, really is impacting and harming people. We've now decided that what would be great is if we could just have DNI conversations via text message. And I just, and someone, someone on the Slack channel was like, hey, Jules, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, I wish that, look, I'm not saying that it can't work, but I'll tell you, it's very difficult to have the conversations in person. You can imagine what we're going to be doing via text message where you can't read tone, you don't see the other person. And I just laugh because this is Silicon's and Silicon Valley's answer to most things. And in cybersecurity, we're still heavily impacted by Silicon Valley. And the easy button is the way we've built our industry. And so getting the people who want to sit down and really sit in that uncomfortable space is few and far between. Until we really can and like have just a group of people who are really, really committed to it to go down the path with, like think about John Lewis till his dying day. He was all in. I don't know that there are that many people in our industry who are all in to that extent. And until there are, we won't see much change. Yeah, and I think I, I think that's right. And I, I think that and and I think there's almost a parallel in very different dimensions, but doing the hard work of cybersecurity and yes. privacy and compliance also. And like I said, very and I don't want to minimize it at all. So very different dimensions. But I think it goes to human psychology, right? We yes. want an easy answer. We want an easy solution. And I'm, by the way, I'm putting myself in that same boat. I'm not criticizing others. You know, mm -hmm. you you want things to be easy because you're you're busy and you're stressed and you're you're thinking about your own family and you're worried about you know some people worried about putting food on the table or paying rent, right? Okay. So I I think that there's so much that goes on with folks that if they can take the easy path on one or two things, they're going to. Um, which brings me to that whole, you know, cybersecurity mindset. Um, 
I have two questions, and they're very different. But the first one is say, what do you think cybersecurity companies can do today to really have a meaningful DNI program? Let, let's start there. What if you could just you know give three steps? Maybe maybe make it a little easier for folks. What three things could they possibly do? Great. Um, one, any any opportunity that you have that is well publicized that can make clear an example of where bias exists, use those as a way to um, engage. Um, I think we have to stop ignoring the news and, and what the public uh, um, incidents um, in order to, to pretend like we're in this idealistic world. We need to be able to, to, to watch the news, accept what has happened, and then like you try to do, communicate it out and allow people the freedom to respond. The second thing is a self-assessment by the um, by the organization as to practices that they may have that are biased, um, and then also um, to the individual executives who, you know, if you're a manager, the managers as well. So conduct a self-assessment, kind of look at anything you may be doing that could at all be a hint of uh, bias or racism or gender bias. And then three, don't be dismissive of people who come to you. There needs to be safe spaces created for black and brown people, for women, for um, those who are you know, neurodiverse to come to executives, come to management, come to HR and indicate things that they feel or experience that maybe the organization doesn't understand, but they have to give some, uh, uh, um, some credence to, some, some credibility, don't ignore it. Because I think a lot of what's happening, and, and even more with women, is that women are reporting, but they're being ignored. And, and those sort of things, um, they happen over time, and then people leave. And we're losing a lot of good women and minorities in the industry because they don't feel heard. Yeah, I could I could write a novel, and you know that, about, yes. um, particularly about women um, the microaggressions and oh. and um, I can tell you that sadly I've learned it gets worse as you become an older woman in cybersecurity. Oh my god! Yeah, you know, just this the language you get. Well, we need new, fresh ideas. Oh. We need. It's like really, <laughs> we do, but that doesn't mean the the older members who have seen things and have a lot of experience can't bring those new, fresh ideas. Don't assume just because someone's experienced that they're that they're you know stale. Anyway, it's there's a lot of microaggressions that you and I could probably spend the rest of this podcast talking about. But, yes. <laughs> but that being said, uh, back to the topic of, of cybersecurity and and what we started with is developing a cyber mindset outside of just tooling. We do like to always leave the audience with you know a few key takeaways. And how do you start developing a mi- cyber mindset? And then once you develop it, how do you maintain it? Um, so when I think about the idea of a cyber mindset, it's more about resilience and vigilance and and even like the it's really the idea of safety and taking precautions and being careful but applied to the way in which we interact online and with technology so when i think about someone who has a cyber mindset you know they are questioning they tend to be curious um, they're ones, you know, in their general um, day-to-day, find themselves to be stewards of their organization. So they they understand that their role 
in their role is to protect the company just in doing their job. But they also, as it relates to cyber, have an additional responsibility to make sure that they're not inviting more risk in, in, in the actions that they're taking. So my, my thought process with building a cyber mindset is we have to um, increase mind share. So when I think about this idea of mind share, I believe that one of the problems is um, employees inside or- organizations they are distracted, busy, they're f- focused on performance in other ways. Cybersecurity isn't top of mind for them. Um, in fact, it's, it's one of the last things they think about. And what awareness programs do today is say, we're going to require you on an annual basis um, or in the month of October to really focus on this thing. And then we're going to f- have you forget it because it's training. As long as you sign off on it, you're going to check the box. We're going to come back to this next year. And we're going to expect that you complete it again. That's not a cyber mindset. It's more of on how do you surround people with cybersecurity in a way that helps them understand that it, it would make them do their jobs better. Cybersecurity has to be better at aligning with the way people think as opposed to trying to make people become security people. We need security to understand business and what the actual motivation is for why people do their job and align itself there. So we want people to think about cyber as a means by better, by better performing than we want people to think, if you do this for us, you're, you're helping the company. No, people want to help themselves. So how does doing security help them do their job better? And that cyber mindset will be, you know what? I received, you know, my company rewards people who don't click on phishing or, or report emails. There's a benefit to me. And salespeople are very benefit, very um, uh, uh, driven by immediate satisfaction. So when I talk about a cyber mindset, I'm not just talking about users. I'm talking about security understanding its users enough to know how to motivate, how to inspire. And so that's the one way. But the second way is engagement. You need bold, beautiful designs. You need funny, humorous um, 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 uh, media. You need, um, you know, things that are just like you would do with, with Apple. It's inviting to the eye. And then third, how do I get them to act? To, to take the action I'm, I'm asking them to do. And that's all about great design. It's all about copy, marketing copy, that really is aligned with the kind of person you're sending to. So you want to be personalizing your messaging. And then third, you want it to be um, short and frequent enough that you're not disturbing them from doing their job. So you want to figure out the pattern by which you can send information to get the result you want. But you, the top of mind part is you want them to think about you and you know you're successful when they come to you to tell you that they've missed your email or, and I've, we've had this happen, or I really liked what you sent out last week. I, I want to know how to have this discussion at home. Then you know you've caught their attention and now they're thinking about how to apply it in other ways. So there, to me, is a three-step step process, but it isn't just about security getting users to think like security people. It's about security people actually focusing on service, internal customer service, and really understanding the people that they're trying to teach um, about cybersecurity. That's, I think those are great steps. And I, I think that that's, you've hit it right on. And I think it has to go in parallel with deployment of tools, yes. um, even with training and education, right? This is awareness, which is just a little bit different, um, but it has to all be the same thing. 
Well, Jules, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. This has been an exceptional recording, and I appreciate you making the time. Thank you. Um, thanks so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, I selected Jules to be a guest because she has such unique perspective, given her background in the cybersecurity industry, what she brings in. And I knew and she's also a great speaker and a great advocate. I just knew that she would bring a really interesting dimension to the podcast. My top takeaways from the episode are that you can't divorce technology from people in process and training and education, and you can't press the easy button. You just can't. You can't press the easy button. This is hard work, and you have to sign up for it over a longer period of time other than just throwing in a tool and expecting it to be effective you know, in 90 days and solve all your problems. I think those are the core messages. And to our listeners, thank you again for joining us today, and join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.